Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, a partner at Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Joined with me today is my co-host, Jay Augustin, also a partner at Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Jay, thanks for sharing the co-hosting duties today. Awesome, Phil. Happy to be here. Great. And then we have our, our special guest. We have Joe Moriarty, the Director of Acquisitions at Dayton Street. Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast. Guys, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I mean, industrial real estate is the darling of the hour uh, over the past year or, or three, but especially since COVID hit. So, uh, you know, Dayton Street Partners, we're, we're happy to have you guys on the podcast talk about your interesting investment thesis and um, just what you're looking for in terms of acquisitions. I think I get, a, I feel a lot of questions about industrial real estate from investors just poking around. And so uh, tell us a little bit about your position and Dayton Street in general. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so at DSP, I focus on the acquisition side. Uh, my focus is really primarily Chicago, uh, greater Midwest, and then also the Southeast United States. Um, I primarily focus on the ground up development side. So looking for opportunities, whether it's, you know, land sites or existing buildings that could be repositioned for uh, development. That's kind of my focus. But at Dayton Street, you know, we're, we're a local shop here in Chicago. Um, I think, you, you know, kind of pointed to our investment thesis. I think when we originally started, uh, when Howard Wedren kind of founded the shop back in 2006, it was definitely focused on more, um, and I hate to use the cliche, but kind of urban infill. Um, so repositioning of um, office or industrial assets, um, I think that strategy has definitely shifted over the past few years. Part of that is just that Dayton Street as a company has grown. Um, we've got more people in the company now. There's more ideas. There's different ways of thinking. Um, but to your point, you know, COVID kind of speaks to it. A lot of it's just been part of the larger shift of the real estate market in general. Industrials become really the, the property type that's most in favor. Um, we've also started exploring um, some of the non-traditional industrial types. So think truck terminals, truck maintenance facilities, um, parking facilities, anything that has um, some connectivity to distribution um, has really been the focus for us over the last two to three years. Joe, how did you find your way to Dayton Street? Tell us a little bit about your path in real estate uh, and what led you there. Absolutely. So I originally uh, am from Kansas City, uh, graduated from the University of Kansas in 2013, studied finance, really at the time didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I think like most guys coming out of school, um, was very fortunate that I just kind of fell into a job at GE Capital Real Estate. Um, there I worked on the asset management side, um, and looking back on it, that was just an excellent opportunity for me. Um, the, being able to be exposed to a company like GE, um, meet some of the players and people that were in there and really working at that company was absolutely awesome for me. Um, and after about a year and a half through some buddies and mutual connections, I made my way over to JLL. Um, and there I was on the capital market side, uh, focused really on office investment sales. So 
at the time. Uh, Bruce Miller and, and Jim Postweiler were running that um, group. And that was really where I kind of cut my teeth in terms of just understanding real estate, learning how to underwrite deals, um, understanding the um, parameters that investors are looking for when they assess a deal, learning how a deal goes from, you know, due diligence to the entitlement and permitting and closing process, all of that, seeing a deal from start to finish. Uh, I really got that exposure at JLL. And then after, I think, about four years at JLL, um, at that point, I had learned that, hey, I want to be involved in the development side of things, started to look at various opportunities. But what was really important to me was being able to go to a shop where I could really learn kind of how the sausage is made. What I mean by that is I think there were opportunities to go to larger shops where I could have worked on larger profile deals. What was important for me was to go somewhere where I could understand, all right, what's really involved in the permitting process? How do you really entitle a site? How do you take a site from vacant land to a design phase to actually putting a building in the ground? What are the the various processes that you have to go through? And when I joined Dayton Street, it, it was Howard Ledger and Michael Shack. It was two guys. So it was the opportunity for me to get in on the ground floor, learn the business of development. Um, and that's really what drove me to the company in the first place. One of the things that's unique about Dayton Street is its size, right? Like you're doing you know, real high quality projects, but you still have a, a close knit team. Talk a little bit about uh, the culture of Dayton Street, you know, aside from just, you know, the logistics of having a, a smaller shop and to be able to be hands on cradle to grave and a deal. Talk about what really drew you to Howard and his team and, and the culture that they've, uh, you know, kind of cultivated over their time, you know, and then, you know, how that's evolved as you've grown. Uh, have you been able to, you know, maintain the culture or, or have there been challenges in in evolving? Um, so that's a good point. I, I think the thing that, you know, first time I sat down with Howard, I, I realized we're very like minded. Howard historically has been drawn to projects that um, have a lot of challenges. They're projects that other groups have passed on. Um, frankly, they're projects that just take a little more time. Um, a good example is a, a, one of his first spec deals he built down in the stockyards in Chicago. Um, that was one that you know had a lot of environmental and geotechnical issues. Other groups just weren't willing to spend the time with it. Howard rolled up his sleeves and um, developed a great building. So for me, it was being around people who kind of shared some of the same motivations. I think Howard definitely feels that way. Um, You know, part of my joy in really working in real estate and the development process is working on challenging deals. I mean, that's what motivates you to get up in the morning. If everything was just, you know, I decided the next exit that was easy to go through and develop, um, it it wouldn't be, it it wouldn't have the same level of interest. So what I think uh, we're all very like-minded in the sense that we like some of these challenging projects, but to your point, we've grown as a company. When I started at DSP, there was three of us. Now we've got, I think, nine or 10 of us. Um, So, you know, it's, it's been interesting um, navigating, kind of, I guess, 
being able to shoulder some of the burden off on others. And maybe that's not the best way to put it, but when I started, I was doing a little bit of everything. I was underwriting deals. I was helping with asset management. I was working on acquisitions. Now I've really shifted more so just to an acquisitions role. And part of that is just learning to, hey, let other people focus on certain aspects of the business. Your focus needs to be really on the acquisition side. So, you know, that's that's been an interesting um, evolution process for me. But I think, again, everyone at DSP kind of brings the same attitude to the table. And, you know, to, to further that, I guess, one of the reasons we've been able to be successful as we've grown, um, particularly when you talk about the projects that we have in other markets, is we've been able to surround ourselves, whether it's on the general contracting side or the civil engineering side, we've been able to surround ourselves with groups who are experts in their field, but also provide a different viewpoint than ours. They can think differently than we can. They can point something out that maybe we otherwise wouldn't think. So that's been huge in the evolution just of the growth of DSP and and starting to focus on some of these larger opportunities in other markets. So Joe, as the director of acquisitions at Dayton Street, Tell us about your process. If your your task is to acquire properties, you know, what do you on a given day, how do you just wake up and just what's your process for deciding what do I want to look for? Are deals being pitched to you? And then you decide, hey, I like this deal. Let me go pitch it to like who is it investors? Is it a fund? Like who are you pitching? And also, are they mandating on you, Joe, go look for these? Or are you or you just say, I'm going to find some good deals. I'm going to bring it to them. Like, which direction does it work and, and how do you go about it? Great question. So, um, it's funny. I would say when I wake up in the morning, um, every day is different. I, I've kind of just got to go with the flow. So today, for instance, is more about managing deals that we've got in the pipeline. Um, so right now we're under contract on three different sites in Atlanta, all for spec development. Two of those should be, you know, DBs expiring within the next two weeks on two of those. So right now the focus is really on executing on those and getting them into closing and being able to successfully close on the land. You know, there are other days or weeks where the pipeline and timing isn't as full and the thought is, all right, let's go look for sites. Um, that comes through a variety of things. I mean, I think part of that is understanding the markets. Um, and what you're focused on, understanding where opportunities might be. And as silly as this sounds, part of that's just, you know, looking at parcel maps, understanding uh, where landowners are, who might be selling, who won't be selling. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time just calling up landowners. And it sounds silly, but we've gotten deals from that. Um, but to the other side, a lot of it's very relationship driven. Um, so we've got brokers, whether it's in Chicago or Atlanta or Houston, um, you know, everybody is relying on others at certain points, you know, just of the food chain within the business of real estate. So we've been fortunate in that we've um, been able to generate good relationships. Um, and I think, you know, part of finding sites, you, you've got to spend a certain amount of time really going out and trying to dig stuff up on your own, going back to that calling up landowners or trying to think about 
things differently, where, you know, in, in terms of sites that have been out there, but maybe others haven't looked at the same way you are. But another part of it is when brokers do bring you deals or there are opportunities, making sure you act on those, making sure you act on those in a timely manner. If somebody flips you a site that's off market, um, you've got to kind of do your best to give them input or feedback immediately because if it doesn't work with you, they're going to want to take it to somebody else. So part of it's definitely trying to go out, dig up sites on your own. Um, but the other part is, you know, using and growing your existing relationships. To your point about capital partners and how does that process work? At Dayton Street, we've got a few partners that we have, you know, now partnered with multiple times. Um, and because of that, they're definitely preferred partners. Those are guys that, you know, when we're going out looking at deals, we're definitely thinking about and they come kind of front of mind. So it's just part of a good partner. If you've got an opportunity that could be a fit for one of those guys, you want to ensure that you're thinking about them, putting that in front of them, at least providing them the opportunity to, to have a look at it. But if it's not a fit for them, you've got to be able to shift strategy and go to somebody else. So part of the job is, you know, getting out and meeting guys on the capital side. Um, finding new sources of equity, talking with new sources of debt, continuing to grow those relationships because we've had plenty of deals now where we said, hey, we think this is going to be, you know, perfect opportunity for X. And Group X says, no, you know, we're over allocated or we've done too much in Atlanta. You know, this isn't going to work for us. And if it's still a good deal and it's, you know, going to generate good value, you want to be able to execute on that, but you've got to be able to go to somebody else. So, I think on the capital side, part of it is the preferred partners and guys we've done deals with. Um, you know, we've got weekly scheduled calls with those guys. Um, we're talking about our pipeline. We're talking about what we're looking at. But the other part of it is going out and meeting new people and creating new relationships and finding, you know, the best way to try to create value out of those relationships. I always find that having partners that you've done deals with before really cuts down on transaction costs. Because if you've done a couple operating agreements and JVs with preferred partners and you know what they're looking for, what's important to them and not, it really streamlines the process. The other thing I want to point out is I love the, the cold call to try to get a sale. I love that it's a time-tested technique. You know, my father-in-law, so shout out to Big Pete in Michigan, um, he's a landowner in Michigan, and he recently, you know, it was probably about a year or two ago now, but gave gave a broker a shot, a young broker out of Chicago from one of the big shops who just cold called him and just sold him on like, hey, here's what I think you can do with your property. And I think he just loved it. Just like it's old school. It works. And Jay and I have this theory that the young lawyers who actually pick up a phone and call people like us or the client to get information are the ones that will... Have, have a much better shot at succeeding than the ones that just will only send emails. It, it's, it, you know, it's funny too. When I first, you think, all right, acquisitions, people are just bringing me deals. When I first joined DSP and really started focusing on, on acquisitions, you learn very quickly that you've got to make as many calls, if not more than the brokers. Um, and at this point, I've learned that nobody wants to sell their land if, if it's not for sale and on market, no one wants to sell it until you bring them an opportunity they can't say no to. So you really never know unless you pick up the phone and make a call. Um, and some of our best deals have come from really just cold calling and, you know, saying, hey, man, I want to buy your land. Let's figure out how to make this work. 
Was there a fair amount of education that had to be done as you guys were pivoting out of Chicago infill into the Southeast? I mean, obviously, if they read cranes or they, you know, follow you know, follow trends, they know that Southeast real estate is hot. But as you shift your focus, did that require on your part to educate your existing group of investors that, you know, this is this is what we see as hot. This is how we can replicate a lot of our successes that we had in Chicago, in Atlanta, you know, in Texas, wherever else you guys are looking? Or was that a pretty easy sell given market trends? So I, I think that it's, it, it's interesting because it's kind of a, I think, a two-part question. For our investors, I think there was less of an education process. The guys that we've invested with down in, for instance, in Atlanta or in Nashville or in Charlotte, those are more institutional level investors who already had assets there or who had already looked at deals there. Um, and speaking right now just about the Southeast in general, and really the Southeast Sunbelt, just you know, Southern United States, especially during covid um, there has been a shift in investor appetite where I, I think you're starting to see in some of these markets in the Southeast, pricing starting to look a lot like pricing is on the coast. You're starting to see a lot of forward sale opportunities in industrial real estate in the Southeast, something that typically, you know, was more so something you'd see in Inland Empire. So there's been a shift in investor appetite. Um, part of that's just COVID and population growth and, you know, trends toward people wanting to be in these in these states, but a lot of capital is pouring into these markets. Now, on the other side, there was a huge education process for ourselves internally in just understanding, all right, what does it take to go find a deal and make a deal happen in some of these markets? I'll use Atlanta, for instance. The challenges that we face on a project in Atlanta are night and day compared to some of the challenges that we'd face on a project here in Chicago. We're building a 180,000 square foot building in the airport right now down in Atlanta. Um, and that's one that should be completed, I don't know, backside of the summer. The geotechnical and topography issues that you face in the Southeast are not typical to what you'd experience here in Chicago. So understanding really just how investors are looking at sites, um, why certain sites haven't been developed, where tenant demand is, what types of tenants are in certain pockets. You know, is this a, is this a manufacturing driven pocket? Is this a distribution driven pocket? Um, where has the growth been? Where is the growth going? You know, a big part of learning some of these markets in Atlanta in particular is, all right, where are the true distribution drivers? Where are the intermodals? You know, everybody knows where the airport is, but what interstate routes are really important? That whole education process took probably like at least a year. Um, so we really started going under contract and doing it down in the Southeast. I spent probably a year just going down there, touring, meeting people, and just trying to understand the challenges of the market. So it was a big education process for us in terms of actually trying to put a site together. But I think for our investors, it was less so because most of those guys had experience investing in those markets. You know, I think you touched on something earlier that is also related to kind of your exploration of Atlanta. It was this idea that, you know, when you started, you, you really were a jack of all trades, right? That was what the job required. And so, you know, for, for Phil and for me, you know, we are real estate generalists in many ways, right? And so we've done real estate across a variety of buys and sells and leases and financings. 
as you have grown and gotten more specialized, I would imagine for you that given that you uh, kind of experienced all aspects of the deal in your early days at Dayton Street, the idea that you've got to go out now and kind of learn something else and kind of adapt what you learned to this new uh, geography uh, was maybe a little bit easier because you had had that level of exposure to all aspects of the deal, you know, a year or two ago. As your team grows, how do you help and say maybe roles are more kind of segmented or specialized? How do you help one of your team members who may be assisting you on a deal kind of navigate those things with maybe out having that same cradle to grave uh, experience on deal management? Is it tougher? Is it easier for you to learn about Atlanta because you understand all of the different factors that are going to go into play to making a deal successful versus maybe somebody else on your team who didn't have that same broad base of experience in helping you evaluate a site? I think yes. I, I mean, I think it, it, yes and no. I mean, I, I think the fact that I was forced to kind of be a jack of all trades in the beginning, you know, I, I was just forced to figure it out. It, it was fly or die. But to that same point, um, I think part of the reason that we have been successful in Atlanta, and you know, it's funny I've, I've had brokers on the ground there tell tell me this. Sometimes when you're not buried in a market, you have the ability to come into it with a little different perspective, or you can look at something maybe a little bit differently um, than other guys can. Um, and, and that was really the case with our first site down there. I mean, that was a site that has been there forever. Everybody's known about it. It sits across the street from a seven building park that Prologis owns. We just took a, a, a different approach to it based on some of the stuff we've done in O'Hare. So I, I think yes and no. Um, but I do think, you know, as we bring on, for instance, we just hired a, a younger dude um, who's underwriting acquisitions for us now, stellar dude, great work ethic. But I think he kind of brings that same mindset in the sense that, you know, he's, looked at deals across Chicago. And I think to further that point, Chicago on the industrial side, it's such a big market. You're able to see a little bit of everything. You know, what's going on in Joliet um, is different than what's going on in O'Hare is different than what's going on in the stockyards. So because the market's so big, it makes it a little bit easier when you're jumping into an Atlanta or a Nashville or a Charlotte. But to that same point, every market's different. And there's still going to be somewhat of a learning process. But the fact that I was able to go through it on my own, figure some of it out, obviously with the help of others, I think it has made it a little bit easier as we start to get some of these these newer folks up and running in these other markets. Joe, you mentioned that uh, you look for different types of deals, but you're also developers. You, are you developing industrial properties on spec? Just um, I say that to the listeners because it's industrial is different in some senses than other at other different categories of real estate. Like retail, you would never just build a shopping center hoping they would come. You'd have you'd have leases lined up. Multifamily, you'd just be relying on tenants to come as as it's built. But um, are you are you building industrial on spec? And if so, you know how do you? make the decision that this is a place where if you build it, they will come. So I'd love to say that my job is 
you know, building build the suits for FedEx, but it's not. Um, so most of what we build is on a speculative basis. That said, you know, we, we've got existing relationships with tenants that are in some of our buildings, and we spend a lot of time trying to foster those relationships and look at opportunities for build the suit. But 90% of what we do is on the spec side. And I think across, you know, to your point, it's interesting. If, if you said you wanted to go, you know, to downtown Chicago and build a spec office building, I, I don't I don't think you can get a loan to do that unless you're like 30% pre-leased. I, I'm not an office guy, but that's just kind of what I recall. It's night and day and industrial and in that I think the majority of industrial product across the United States is, is built on a spec basis. I think, you know, if I had to guess, probably 60 to 75%. Part of that's just been the demand has been there and banks have realized that and there's been enough success doing it that, you know, it, it allows for it to keep happening. But to your point, you've got to make sure that you're building in pockets where um, there's going to be demand. So I, I think part of it is going back to something we focus on. And, it, you know, anytime we pull up a site, we say, all right, what are the barriers to entry? How easy would it be to replicate this deal next door? Um, and that's a big part of the process. I mean, if there's limited supply, um, then obviously you're going to be at the forefront um, of tenants' minds when they're looking for space. So we try to build in pockets that we believe are high growth, but a, a, a big thing in industrial real estate, and there's obviously been a shift over the last 10 to 15 years from, you know, manufacturing to really more so distribution and now e-commerce driving kind of industrial real estate as a whole. But a big thing we look for is um, immediate access to airport, intermodal, or multiple points of interstate. Those things seem kind of obvious, but are often a little bit harder to come by than maybe meets the eye. I think the intermodal thing is probably the most important and maybe the most overlooked. If you look at how goods go through the United States, um, particularly in today's time, um, it's not possible without intermodals. If something's on a plane, at some point when that touches down from its origin to destination, it's going to hit an intermodal at some point. So I think looking to surround yourself by some of these real sources of distribution, that's something we've focused on with all the projects and sites that we look for. Joe, I got a question for you. All right. So you, I think you touched on it with e-commerce. Let's put our macroeconomic hats on. So I think like 10 years ago, if you were to tell me that industrial would just boom, I mean, I think that the shift towards computers and technology have obviously come a very long way in the past 20 years. But I, and I think if you would have told me that everything would get super high tech and we'd have computers in our in our pockets, on our phones, and everything, I don't know if mass industrial physical plants would have been something I would have leapt to. But I was, you know, I was walking down the street yesterday and the Amazon guy was stopping at every house. Like he literally was just driving 20 feet like the mailman. And I was like, man, that is how far deliveries have come where just 
they just know every day, basically every house in the street is going to get a package of some sort. Um, so just like, what do you think has just driven this really just incredible demand for industrial real estate over the past five, 10 years? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously e-commerce is the kind of touch point hot word general distribution i mean part of that's technology part of that's you know as technology's evolved people want access to goods um, more quickly and as technology's evolved that's allowed for e-commerce to become a much bigger player in the overall retail business i mean e-commerce right now i think accounts for plus or minus 20% of overall retail volume in the United States. And that, you know, over, and, and I guess to that point, COVID has expanded that rapidly. I mean, pre-COVID, I think it was like 15 to 16%. So uh, e-commerce right now is definitely the largest driver for industrial real estate. But I think there's a lot of, a lot of runway for growth in that. And I think that will people especially as COVID starts to subside. Will people go back and, and shop locally or go into clothing stores and, you know, physical retail? Yeah, that'll always be there. I think that's the same idea that, you know, people will always want to go to the movie theater. But is Netflix a pretty viable option? Yeah. And same, same thing with e-commerce. I think what COVID has done, which is unique, is – it uh, turned some people who otherwise probably would not have been e adopters of e-commerce and it forced them to utilize e-commerce, whether that meant ordering freshly for their food delivery or, you know, ordering Uber Eats or ordering shoes online because they didn't want to go to the Nike outlet. That's forced people to try it out. And, you know, this has been going on a year plus now. Over time, people are conditioned and, you know, the ways they operate change. So there's a lot of runway for growth left in e-commerce. And I think the fact that you've more than likely, well, you have had more people over the last year start to adopt e-commerce and have seen kind of the benefits of it. I think it's only going to continue to grow. So I think that's the biggest driver right now. And I think that's going to be the biggest driver going forward for the foreseeable future. What have been the challenges that Dayton Street has had to navigate during COVID? Um, what have been the opportunities that have kind of presented themselves? I think for, you know, for film, for me in the real estate space, <clears throat> you know, I think we've really, you know, faced the challenge of not being able to kind of collaborate and commiserate together in person, though we do it a lot on the screens. But what we've also found, you know, is that clients, you know, continue to have an appetite for growth and expansion and development. And there was still a demand for legal service. Um, how did Dayton Street, uh, experience COVID, uh, both kind of in an interpersonal level, but also, you know, in terms of your business opportunities? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I think to your point, I mean, we've all been working remotely really since like March of last year. So going on over a year now, I've gone into the office, you know, sparingly, um, as have some of the other uh, folks that are shop, but for the most part, we're working remotely. So it's forced us to kind of adopt, you know, some of these technology features that otherwise we weren't, you know, using previously, but it's also just forced us to be more proactive. Hey, you know, pick up the phone and check in with everybody, you know, see what's going on in their day, set regularly scheduled meetings. So if anything, I think it's 
probably actually made us just a little more regimented and forced us to be a little more on top of everything because it's not, you know, it's not like you can just bump into somebody's office and say, Hey man, where are we on this? You've got to actually set and make time throughout the day um, to check in and, you know, have status updates. So that's actually been a positive, I think, for us. In terms of the business, you know, it's interesting. This has been one of the largest drivers of, if not, if not the largest driver of industrial demand, maybe ever. Um, you look at, you know, pricing across the U.S. in most markets right now is at record levels. Um, absorption and leasing velocity in most markets is at record levels. So it's been very good for industrial demand, both from a tenant perspective and from an investor perspective, which is great if you're developing real estate. The problem has been, which is a significant challenge that we're facing on multiple projects right now, supply and labor of goods, uh, supply of goods and just labor behind the actual construction process. The cost of steel has risen dramatically over the last six months. And it's something that really, I think, kind of hit its peak uh, during the month of March. We've got two projects where our cost of steel um, over a 30-day period increased 50%. It makes it almost impossible to keep those projects going. So while it's been great for industrial real estate, uh, there's so much demand. There's so many people building. Um, supplies are so severely backlogged. And part of that is because COVID and there was less labor and there's been shipping issues, you know, internationally, you know, there's multiple factors at play, but that is now starting to make development of new product very difficult. So, you know, we're looking at a couple alternatives for how to handle that. Part of that is trying to, you know, lock in your pricing and in your place in line for some of these uh, goods that you're going to need. The other part is saying, hey, you know, is this one that we ultimately, you know, try to push down the road or is this one we just have to walk away from? Um, I think it is starting to get to a point, though, where unless you're a big institutional player, um, there are going to be certain certain projects on the development side that ultimately will fall apart just due to the, you know, rising construction costs. Do you generally think about that as a, a short or intermediate term blip, or does that encourage you to think about, you know, repositioning an existing asset uh, that may not have the same kind of ground up construction or materiel costs? Uh, do those become more viable as you're thinking about, you know, construction timelines and costs? Yeah, I think those definitely become more viable. And I think at some point here, there will probably be somewhat of a shift from, all this spec development to a little more, all right, can't, does it make more sense to now reposition this and try to go back to kind of just value add investment thesis in general? I do believe though that eventually, you know, in the world, in the scheme of things, I think this is probably a short-term issue. My guess would be by 2022 at some point, things start to normalize a little bit, but I don't think we're going to see a dramatic reduction in pricing because the demand is so intense right now and if anything it's probably only going to increase um so so i don't think the pricing is going to subside kind of back to levels that it had previously been last year i, I think this is kind of the new normal 
past. Um, so I think that will create more opportunities to reposition assets for sure. And then you mentioned earlier about the costs, <clears throat> costs on, you know, in the Southeast, you know, Marion costs on the coast. When you kind of combine those pricing pressures and, you know, what we're talking about in terms of supplies and labor, um, are you taking and obviously you've got three you know two deals that are getting ready to go hard on diligence next week uh, but is it is it encouraging you or is it incentivizing you to start looking at you know other you know geographies maybe in the center of the country maybe in off of out of the southeast that maybe meet those requirements for transit for intermodal you know airport interstates you know is is some portion of your time kind of always spent identifying you know, new markets kind of outside of where you're exploring right now for what might be next? Or is the nature of the shop such that you need to, you know, kind of focus on what you've got in the pipeline for now? And then, you know, as that need arises, you know, then you can kind of shift focus and start thinking about other places to plant a flag. Yeah, that's um excellent question. We're definitely looking at opportunities in other markets um, that we're not currently in. So we're always trying to um, you know, put ourselves in, in a position to react to what's going on around us. So we're definitely doing that. But I think, you know, to your point, uh, given the demand in some of these markets, let's just go back to the Southeast, given the demand there, while pricing on both the land side and just, you know, general construction costs have gone up dramatically over the last year. On the flip side, investors are, have also been willing to pay more for properties that meet their requirements in these markets. So I think, you know, going into COVID or kind of mid last year, since that time period, we've seen probably 50 to 75 basis points of cap rate compression um, in some of these markets in the Southeast. So while land values have gone up, um, construction costs are increasing, um, and just competition overall has gone up, making it harder to do deals, there has been some pricing compression on the backside, which I think still has allowed these deals to be palatable from an investment standpoint. That's great. So um, I'll let you out of here on this and kind of the last question, just uh, what's your prediction for the future? You know, where do you see over the next two, three years? Do you see an explosion in any other geographic area or uh, just consistent growth? You know, do you, got, do you got anything that you got your eye on on the horizon? You know, I, I think it's, it's probably my best guess would be um, you continue to see this this e-commerce expansion. There will be just you know general growth in technology like we've seen. So I think you're going to continue to see demand for distribution and logistics real estate. To your question though, and kind of outside of what I focus, but just speaking more generally, I do think though you look at the office market in New York. People, that office market in New York is going to come back. That's a market that just has to be functioning in America for our society to go on. Um, so I, I think that there have been some things that have happened over the last year during COVID that have caused dramatic shifts in the way people look at investing in real estate. 
Um, and I think some of those things will stay. I, I think the, you know, the shift to distribution being more preferable, I think that's probably here to stay for the long run. Um, however, I do think that there are pockets and markets that will come back strong and ultimately in a few years be back, you know, to the levels that they were before COVID. New York office market being one example. You know, I, I think that ultimately people will start going back to, you know, movies and movie theaters will come back in favor. So I think that you're going to see this continued growth in just general e-commerce. But I do think you're going to see some of these markets that previously were in favor but fell out during COVID. I think you'll start to see some of those come come back to life as, as people start to get back to their normal lives. And Joe, my last question, it, kind of along those lines, it, do you envision a universe in which 18 months, two years, three years, you know, some subset of the Dayton Street team starts to look at those asset classes, you know, given both the historical experience you've had, you know, in office years ago, coupled with your, you know, philosophy of not being afraid of hair and, and challenge that uh, despite a, a current focus in industrial, that there could be a pivot at some point to looking at these other asset classes as opportunities? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think to your point, we, we've got the foundation, myself, Howard, Michael, we all really kind of, you know, cut our teeth in office. So we all, we all know office well. I think it's something that we'd be willing to go back to definitely. And I think to your point, you've, you've got to be able to adapt. So, you know, if in five years, for whatever reason, no one wanted to buy industrial, it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for us to continue building industrial. So I think if the market calls for it, we'll be able to react. Um, we've got the history. We've got the foundation. We've done it before. But right now, the focus is, you know, industrial and distribution real estate. And until the market kind of shifts, I think that will remain the focus. Well, Joe, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks to Dayton Street Partners for being part of the podcast. We really appreciate your time and your insights today. Absolutely. Jay, Phil, thanks for having me. This has been a blast and I'm glad we got to do it. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 